in Acts chapter 23. Now, in Acts 22, we left off where our brother, Paul, our dear brother, our giant, our spiritual giant, in trying to satisfy those at the Jerusalem church who said to him, well, it's good what you're doing, these missionary works are great, but we, you need to convince the brothers in the church, the Jewish brothers in the church, that you are still a Jew. Because they need to, they're zealous for the law. And they want to see that you're zealous for the law. The law. We need to see it. So we want you to go to the temple and to get involved in a purification ritual. It's called a Nazarite vow. And we want you to pay for four of our brothers who are going to take that vow as well. You pay for the four of them and you do it yourself. And that will satisfy these Jewish brethren that we have that you are still a good Jew and you respect the Jewish people and brother Paul who says when I am with the Jews I am a Jew when I am with the Gentiles I am a Gentile when I am with those under the law I am under the law when I'm with those who are beyond the law I am with them I am all things to all men for Christ Jesus because my what I'm only concerned about is the cross of Jesus Christ to bring them to the cross and so he does this he does this he goes there and for seven days he's at the at the temple and so what happens Jewish men from other parts of the world who have seen him and know him see Paul know that he's with Gentiles and assume that he has brought Gentiles into the inner court of the temple beyond the court of the Gentiles into the area where they were not allowed and a riot ensues and Paul is given a chance by the Roman commanders to speak to them in, in chapter 22 and present the gospel of Jesus Christ because Paul believes that when people hear the gospel of Jesus Christ their lives will be changed and they will understand and the riot will be quelled well here's what happens not all people want to hear not all people want to the gospel isn't accepted by everyone. Not everyone. The way is narrow, as you heard this morning. And many people do not want to hear. And the Jewish people at that point turn their hearts off. And I am convinced that at this point, the Holy Spirit, through God, allowed a partial hardening at this point on the people of Israel. Meaning that from this point forward, Israel would have a hardening as a nation, as a people as a culture as an institution to accept Jesus Christ they would still have individual Jewish people would by grace still be able to come to Jesus but as an institutional people as a corporate group no until the time when all of the Gentiles have had the opportunity to come to the Lord and I believe that all of the Gentiles coming to the Lord means the rapture that's what I believe the rapture once the rapture comes, then I believe, I believe, then Israel will have a chance to be restored to its position where it will become evangelical. Israel as a country, as a state, as a people. That doesn't mean all Jews, but it means that as a people, they will accept Jesus Christ. It will be a glorious day. Uh, but in the meantime, this mob, after he got done with this beautiful sermon, responded by saying kill him wipe him off the face of the earth I think that's the exact quote wipe him off the face of the earth 
Roman commander takes him, takes him, takes him into custody uh, to keep this riot from getting out of control. And he determines, he determines that this is not a question of violation of Roman law. This is a purely Jewish religious issue. And so the Roman commander, Lysias, convenes the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the body of Jewish religious leaders that is responsible to decide religious issues, responsible for the governance of the temple. And so before we begin, it's going to be important for you to understand a few things because it's important for you to understand who is populating the Sanhedrin. Uh, you're going to see here that a dispute will break out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And you've been reading all your life about Pharisees and Sadducees. And the question becomes, do you really understand the theological and cultural difference between Pharisees and Sadducees? And I would say, in my experience, 99% of the people in church do not. And this is an important issue. You need to know this because you're going to see why a riot is going to break out in the Sanhedrin during this uh, uh, review of Paul. The Sadducees, the chief priests of the Sanhedrin, were typically from the Sadducees. The Sadducees were only numbered about several hundred in all of Israel. The Pharisees numbered more than 6,000. Uh, the Sadducees were an exclusive social group. They were wealthy. They were unpopular with the common people. They were politically astute. They were not really religious, but they had the ability through their money, through their lands, to exert power. And through that power, they typically became the chief priest, imagine, uh, and they had the ability to effectively dominate the Sanhedrin. They were unconcerned. Sadducees were unconcerned about ritual purity except on ceremonial occasions. In other words, when the high holiday holidays came, they observed them. The day they walked out the door, it's done. Right? And the reason it was done is the Sadducees did not believe in life after death. They did not believe in the resurrection of the body. They believed only in the first five books of the Bible. They rejected the rest of the Old Testament. The Pharisees, on the other hand, accepted all of the Old Testament with the exception of the book of Esther. Why? That's for another occasion. But they accept, effectively accepted all of the Old Testament. Now, they were also, Pharisees were concerned about ritual purity. They were concerned about the law. Say what you want about the Pharisees, and we know we speak ill of them often because they were hypocrites, but they were keen observers of the law. They spoke about the law, even if they didn't live that way. They were concerned about it. They expressed the concern. They taught about it. And so 
they also believed in the resurrection of the body. They believed in life after death. They believed that at the end of the world, when the Messiah came, there would be a resurrection. And they would then be put into the bosom of Abraham. And so you're getting a juxtaposition here of two very different groups. Uh, and in terms of their religious aspects, Pharisees looked at Sadducees almost as apostates. So there was a natural enmity here in terms of religious theology. This is important for, for, for you to know this. It really explains what's going to happen because I think a lot of people always said, well, Pharisees, Sadducees, it's the same thing. You know, they're the religious leaders. They're very, very different. Scribes, where do the scribes come in? The scribes are a subsect of the Pharisees devoted to teaching. They were the teachers. They were devoted to the law. So, um, the other point about this is that the Sadducees were responsible for the governance of the temple. And the temple was where there was big money. Sorry to say it. But the temple was a bank. It was a repository. Uh, when you came and you, you were a a Jew at the, at the high holy days and you came to the temple, you needed to uh, buy a sacrificial animal that would be sacrificed, they would charge you an inflated price. Can you believe this? They would gouge you. And the Sadducees were responsible. You need it. We have it. Here's what it costs. Uh, it was very much, very much involved about money. And so it's kind of a sad commentary for us as we look at this to get an, uh, an understanding of what's going on as we're about to engage in this hearing before the Sanhedrin. So Acts 22, verse 1, let's now focus in on the hearing itself. Uh, and what I want you to focus on, first of all, is the admirable composure that our brother Paul has. Think about it. You've just been part of a riot. Wherever you've been in the world, people have hunted you down and stoned you and tried to kill you and murder you. You've just had to be rescued. You've had to be rescued by the Roman battalion. Hundreds of soldiers had to come out as people wanted to tear you apart. Now you're being put in front of the Sanhedrin where you know that they despise you and hate you. The very people that were involved in sentencing Stephen to death, you are now appearing in front of them. In fact, you were there. So you know how they are. And yet think of the composure that he has to get up and speak like this to these people that can only be done through the Holy Spirit. There's no other explanation. I don't care how gifted you are. You can't stand up in front of an angry, howling mob just because of your natural gifts. It's the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so beginning with verse 1, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. Think of how he's, what he's doing here. Brothers and fathers. In other words, he's making a relationship. He's saying to them, I am one of you. I am one of you. Uh, I, 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 am, I have been here. I am a Pharisee. I am a Jew. Listen to my defense. I am one of your people. When they heard him speak to them, excuse me, I'm in Acts 22. I want to be in Acts 23. Pardon me. Pardon me. Acts 23, verse 1. 
All right, Acts 23, verse 1. Paul, verse 1. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience this day. Now, again, the composure that he's saying, that he's speaking. I have fulfilled my duty to God. Brothers, part of me. Okay, my brothers, we are the same. At this, the high priest, Ananias, who was a Sadducee, Ananias, and by the way, who would be assassinated about two years from this time, he'd be assassinated. Uh, Ananias, at this, Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Can you imagine? Let's understand what the rules were. There was a presumption of innocence. Under Jewish law, you were presumed innocent until a judgment came down. They had no authority. Nobody had any authority to reach out and execute corporal punishment on him. They had no authority. And so Ananias, the very high priest, says, punch him in the mouth. Punch him in the mouth. Now, what did he say that so infuriated him? I'm convinced it was the very composure that Paul had. It must have been like Stephen. When they stood up there and stood there and in front of this angry, adverse mob, and to see a man at peace and his, just his whole demeanor must have just said, beat him, beat him. They couldn't even control themselves. And so they hit him. They hit him. Then Paul said to him, and I love this, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now, do you think Brother Paul had a temper? Is that something that you're, you're worried about yourself? You know, I can't serve Jesus. I, I'm not good for the kingdom. I have this part of me that I'm really, I know I get to be angry. I have this part of me that I tend to explode. You don't think Jesus knows what your personality is? Who gave you your personality? All right? You're a type A. All right? Where do you, th you think that came from? Jesus gave it to you. Some of us are burdened with that kind of personality. Frankly, I'll tell you the truth. If I were there, it wouldn't have been words coming out of my mouth. I would have grabbed them. I mean, I wonder what you would do. And he just told them to punch me in the mouth. In front of this religious group, this is what's going on. And he calls them a whitewashed wall. Where did that term come from? Jesus said it last. Remember when Jesus said to the Pharisees, you whitewashed sepulcher. It's as if I would look at a sepulcher and I'd see a pure white wall. And inside there's corruption and death and decay. And yet on the outside it looks perfectly pure. And so, obviously, he, he reacted in, in anger. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. He's right. It was a violation of their own law. And you, you are God's man. You are the high priest. Those who were standing near Paul said, you dare to insult God's high priest. And here you go again where Paul will not want to alienate brothers if he can find it, if he can find a way that he can, do, he can operate for Christ without alienating somebody, he will do it. You dare to insult God's high priest? Paul replied, verse 5, Brothers, 
I did not re realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. There's a footnote there. It's Exodus. You can read it at home. But do you, tell me, do you think he did not realize that Ananias was the high priest? I mean, you would think he walked in there, you would assume it's a ceremonial proceeding. I would imagine that Ananias probably had a tall hat. I mean, I would imagine there would have been something to distinguish him from everybody else. I would imagine that everybody was giving obeisance to, to Ananias. The point is, when he said, I didn't realize that you were the high priest, I believe that that means... I knew you were the high priest, but I didn't think you were because of the way you've acted. A man who is truly the high priest would not act like this. All right? A man who is truly the high priest wouldn't act like that. And then, and, and, and he, he acknowledged it. Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. That's an exodus. God has commanded that. You're not supposed to speak evil of the high priest. We're not supposed to do that, but that, that, presumes, that presumes that the high priest is the anointed man of God. That's what it presumes. But yes, Ed. Interestingly, he's really apologizing to his brothers. Not that's bad. exactly right. That's exactly what that's about. That's right, Ed. He's apologizing, apologizing to the Jewish brethren, who I'm sure they're watching this proceeding, saying to them, look, I'm still a Jew's Jew. I understand what the law is. Nothing has changed in my mind, but I want you to understand something. I didn't know he was the high priest because he's not acting as the high priest. And then you see how God intervenes and gives extraordinary, supernatural wisdom and grace when you need it the most. Because here he is in front of this group of people who are basically going to try to find a way to murder him. And God, through his gifts of Paul, finds a way to turn the tables on them. Verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, and now you know exactly what that means, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of of the dead. That's like putting a bomb out in the middle of this group, blowing a bomb out, because half of the people in the group, including the high priest, do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They don't believe in life after death. And now he has pinpointed the very essence of why he's there. He's there because on the road to Damascus, he met the risen Christ Jesus, resurrected from the dead. And he saw him face to face, and he believed in him. And therefore, because of the resurrection of the dead, that's exactly why he was there. And that was like lighting bombs. Bombs in this group. And look what happens next. When he said this, I stand on, on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels 
nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. You know that. You know that. Luke is telling that to the general uh, readership who doesn't know what you just learned. Yes, a dispute broke out. But this isn't like an orderly dispute, like we're going to have a debate. You know, you have to reconsider your thoughts. No, that's not a bad idea. Well, there's some merit in what you say, but have you ever... No, this is basically a fist fight. This is a wrestling match. This has nothing to do with sitting there and being respectful. These groups now, because he has hit the very essence of their differential, because the Pharisees believe in angels. They believe in a life after. And so Paul said, I saw Jesus on the road. You know what? He could have seen an angel. An angel could have appeared to him. That would be a Pharisee's position. It's possible. And the Sadducees go, this is disgusting. This is ridiculous. He couldn't have seen that. There are no such things as angels. Furthermore, there's no life after death. There's no resurrection of the body. This this is apostasy. And so the entire proceeding now, instead of focusing on Paul, now focuses on them with one sentence. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable how the Holy Spirit gave him that, that insight. And so there was a great uproar, verse 9. And some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to them? It's just amazing. Can you imagine? In this short one-sentence line, he has taken this angry mob and now divided it, and now half of them are going, this, this guy's a good guy. I mean, he's got, you know, there's some merit in what he's saying. Maybe we don't agree completely with what he's saying, but you know, it's possible. Certainly, we believe in a resurrection. So, uh, there's, he hasn't violated any law. He hasn't broken any law. And this fist fight breaks out. And so the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bringing him into the barracks. Oh my. Paul, wherever he goes, whatever he does, a mob, a riot, only for the Lord Jesus. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. And so here he is at this very dark, depressing moment when he can't get a fair hearing, where people don't want to hear him, where people want to kill him. Uh, and look what the Lord Jesus does. That following night, verse 11, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage as you, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so must you also testify in Rome. So for those of you who say, I wasn't sure that it was meant by the Holy Spirit for him to go to Jerusalem, the confirmation is Jesus appearing to him and saying, Fear not, I am with you. You must go to Rome, and you will testify of me. No harm shall befall you. Effectively, what Jesus is saying there is, Paul, I know it's bad. I know it's really bad, but I see it. I see everything that you're suffering. 
But here's what I want you to know. My grace is sufficient for you. And there's a lesson right here for us. For us. Because Jesus knows that you're sick. He knows that you're suffering. He knows that you're being persecuted. He knows that you've got financial problems. He knows that you've got relational issues in your family. He knows every single aspect of your life. And what he is saying to you is, My child, fear not. My grace is sufficient for you. And if he could say this to Paul, who wherever he went in the world, tumult and stonings and beatings and persecutions and chains and prison followed him, He's telling you right now in Naples. He sees what you're going through. Never, ever, ever lose faith. And I think what happens to us as Christians is that we don't fully understand the grace of Jesus, the absolutely overwhelming grace, because once you're a Christian, once you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, at that moment, God has fully given you all of the grace that you will need. And the problem with a lot of us we just tap into a little bit of grace. You know, well, God, I know this is a big deal. This is a really big deal. Not realizing that God has fully given you all the grace that you need. And I want to recommend a book to you on this topic that somebody in the class gave me to read and told me that it transformed uh, Hayes' ministry. And I was with Hayes this week, and he confirmed it. The book is entitled Victory in Christ by Charles Trumbull. Victory in Christ. It's a little book. It's only 100 pages. But if you have any chance to go out and get this book, please get this book. This is a book you should keep by your bedside. Because I'm telling you, it's a book that will really tell you what it means when you are a Christian. What it means to have the overwhelming grace that God has given you. And how you understand this. And you know, this brother gave it to me to give to my son. He said that, it's imp that it was important for anybody going into the ministry to read it. And I had given it to my son. And my son gave it back to me and said, this book is powerful. You know, and I read the book and it was unbelievable because my son only underlined one sentence in that book. And the sentence was, fear not about where God will place you in life and where he wants you to serve, his grace is sufficient for you. When I saw that sentence underlined, all I can tell you was the greatest Father's Day gift I could get. Because it meant to me that he understood what it means, what it means to have grace, to fully accept the grace of Jesus Christ when you're sick, and when you're destitute, and when you're suffering. Because it's a grace is gonna get you through. He's provided it for us. And so you just imagine what it must have been like for Paul. When I think of this man, I can, I can, I'm so humbled that this man would be able to do what he was, go through what he did, and still write like this. That's got to be an encouragement to each and every one of you. It so touches my heart. And one of the things that I learned in, in studying Acts is that Acts is operating on several levels. Acts was written, this book was written in the year 60 AD, most commentators say. The event that took place here, these events, took place four years earlier. 
all right? There's a four-year time differential between the time of the writing and the actual event. Luke is writing this partially as a defense of Paul. O Theophilus, right? Remember when this starts off? O Theophilus, who was getting the letter, Max, that's who it was written to. Theophilus was most probably a Roman official. Commentators believe that this book, this letter, was being written as part of a legal defense. And it, what it was doing was it was demonstrating that Paul was innocent, that he'd committed no violation of Roman law. It was a written to show, and this is an addition to the grand theological statements in Acts, it first of all demonstrated that there was, this was an internal Jewish dispute between the victim and the conspirators who wanted him to kill. And the, the, all of these people were Jews, both the victim and the conspirator. And now what it also showed is that the inclusion of Gentiles into Israel by Paul had now come to be more of a cause of tumult than the Messiahship of Jesus. You see this here. We're not, they're, they're not talking about Jesus now. They're, this issue is now... Uh, eroded into the issue of Gentiles being brought into Israel, into, into the covenant. And so what also Luke is saying here is that this was treason towards Rome, that these enemies of Paul are enemies of Rome, because if necessary, if they think it's necessary, they will shed Roman blood in addition to Jewish blood to kill him. And you're going to see that very shortly. Uh, it also demonstrated that they were hypocrites, that this Jewish high council was not a group of, of religious Jews, but instead it was a group of hypocrites. And you're going to see that very shortly. And so, uh, verse 12. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the degree of hatred that it takes? These so-called people would take a vow not to eat or to drink until they executed Paul and assassinated him. And so, verse 13, more than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. Can you imagine? They go and become co-conspirators of murder with the high priest and the others in the Sanhedrin, most probably Sadducees. Men who were supposed to be the light of Israel. Men who were supposed to be the beacons of the law, and yet they were involved in conspiratorial murder. Do you see the extent that Satan can tempt people? I mean, this is so powerful. What, what the forces of evil that are arrayed against Paul. This isn't like somebody just doesn't think that highly of me. This is, I want him dead. He's got to go. And the religious command agrees. And so they enter into this unholy alliance. And so what happens next in verse 16? 
But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul, we know nothing of Paul's family. This is the only mention we'll ever get of, having, of him having relatives. And it appears that this nephew of his most probably was a Christian. I can't imagine that he wasn't, only because why would he put himself out to this extent? He had heard of the plot. He goes in and he tells Paul of the plot to kill him, which meant that his Paul's sister probably was nearby as well. And so we don't know anything about her, but I think you can infer from this that the nephew was probably a Christian. Verse 17. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. I want you to think here now is this. I want you to think of how a prisoner, a prisoner, is now giving instructions to the soldiers and they're following these instructions. Do you, does this strike you as unbelievable? He's talking to the soldiers and saying, here, take him, go, tell, do this, will you please do, and they're following it. What does it mean? It means to me, first of all, that they must have been inspired by this man. They saw with their own eyes that this, this man was different. This was no criminal. It also tells me that the Holy Spirit must have touched their hearts. And so what do they do? They do exactly that. They take the nephew. They bring him to the commander, to Lysias. They bring him. And, and, and I mean, you just see the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. Verse 19. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside, and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now waiting for your consent to the request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. In other words, he didn't dismiss it. He accepted it. He understood this was a threat. It was a very threat to Rome because this would uh, uh, un uh, unravel Ro uh, Rome's authority if he allowed this to happen. And so what's going to happen next? 470 soldiers. Write it down. Put a circle around it. 470 soldiers will accompany Paul in the middle of the night in protection and take him 65 miles to Caesarea. In other words, my grace is sufficient for you, even if it means I have to make Rome your protector. Even if it means I will call out 470 soldiers in the middle of the night to protect you. My grace is sufficient. You think God's got your backside? You think he cares about you? You think he's watching you and will use any extraordinary supernatural channel that he has to in order to protect you and be with you? I don't care what it is. That's what this strikes me as. Where Rome, Rome itself is now his protector. And when I think about the prophet Agabus, who said one chapter earlier, 
he took Paul's belt and said, the belt of this man, the, will, the Jews will bind him and turn him over to the Gentiles. Wrong! Wrong! The Jews will not turn him over to the Gentiles. The Jews want him turned over to them. But the Gentiles will not turn him over to them. Extraordinary. Reversal of what you wouldn't expect to see. Extraordinary. Uh, and, and this is amazing to me. And so then he called to two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at 9 tonight. 9 tonight, middle of the night, 65 miles they're going to go. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows, and this is another example of why I believe that the uh, Acts... Luke is writing this as a defense of Paul in Rome to be used as a defense for Paul to show that he was not guilty of Roman law because he attaches the very letter of Lysias. He attaches it almost as if a lawyer would do that in writing a brief and putting in Exhibit A. Exhibit A, I give you the very letter of Rome. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency Governor Felix, greeting. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I have learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him, that deserved death or imprisonment. In other words, he's innocent. He's innocent. I'm giving him to you, but I'm writing you this letter is that under my investigation, I could find no violation of any law. He's innocent. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris, which is halfway. 35 miles in one day, can you imagine? 35 miles in one day. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. He would be kept under guard in Herod's palace for two years. Two years. Okay? This is an innocent man. Two years. He should have been released summarily. But two years he's under guard in the palace. And why is this important? Because as we close this class and this lesson for this season, my grace is sufficient for you. That's the lesson. That's the abiding lesson here. God knows what you're going through. There's nothing that you're experiencing or suffering that he doesn't see. You're his child. And I want to emphasize this to you today. That if he stood with Paul and brought out the legions of Rome, 
the legions of Rome to save him and protect him in order to complete his mission. Will he do anything less for us? Amen? Let's close in prayer. Oh, Lord Jesus, we're so grateful to be able to be here as a class. We're so privileged to be part of this church, to be able to study your word, Lord. We thank you that you give us the word. We ask that it be applied to our heart. Now, Lord, I ask a special blessing and protection on these dear people for the weeks that we will not be together. Lord, be with them and protect them in every way. Bless this class as it goes forward with Pastor Roy. Touch him so that he can continue to give the word, as I know he will, Lord. And bless these people with a wall of protection around them and their families in every place they go and everything that they do. And Lord, also, please protect Linda and me and be with us so that we can be back and continue the study of the word and serve you together as a class, Lord. We put all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all.